0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Normally, we cover modern day discoveries, ancient discoveries, new knowledge solutions, and we talk about breakthroughs. And normally, I do not get into political content. I just don't. I don't want to be involved in any type of bashing or strife or polarization, so I've stayed away from it. However, Today's subject matter is so important for understanding what's going on in American politics at a systemic level and understanding a level of insidiousness and corruption at a process and consciousness level. Jack Abramoff is here with us today, the author of the book Capital Punishment, The Hard Truth About Washington Corruption from America's Most Notorious Lobbyists. I want to tell you a little bit about him, and I also want to tell you a little bit of my bias about him. He was the College Republican National Committee chairman. He was a founding member of the International Freedom Foundation, and he had been on the board of directors of the National Center for Public Policy Research. He also was a top lobbyist at the firm Preston Gates and Ellis, and then Greenberg-Toreg. He has been involved in filmmaking. This is a guy whose life has been about making things happen. He has a passion for making things happen. I happen to have gone to grammar school and high school with him, was at his bar mitzvah. And you never know in life sometimes what happens with people. Sometimes good people take a bad turn or they get corrupted or they're at cause as well for the things that happen to them. But either way, I read the book Capital Punishment. I've invited him here today as an insider, even though he's a former lobbyist, to talk about why it is he felt that he committed fraud, tax evasion, and conspiracy to bribe public officials, what that really was about. But most important, what is it about the congressional environment and legislation and the Senate that we need to know and the process that's in place that is, in fact, corrupting so many officials We want to know why it is that Congress people don't have to read the bills that they sign and how bills are actually passed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jack Abramoff to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: First of all, I was mad at you and I hated you when I first heard about this, and I didn't even know it was you. I was like, is that the Jack Abramoff I went to school with? And of course, it's always easy to hate somebody that has done something that the media has now taken hold of. So it's very easy You don't always know all the details. But after reading your book, I realized that there were a lot of things that you admitted to doing that were horrendous. You own that. So I really don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But I want to tell you, my bias is that you should be forgiven. Now, people are not going to like me for this because they're going to think it's a crony thing. It's not that. It's that I think you will, on one part, spiritually, never complete the payment and you know what I mean by this when I say it, you'll never complete the spiritual payment of what was done in your lifetime. However, you will be able to make amends with people, institutions, and the future good deeds that you do in the here and now and in the future. And you will be able to live a life of restitution and have a very good life with your family and friends and associates, even if you'll be followed your whole life, even if this thing will always be connected and associated to you. Where I'm coming from is that you should be forgiven because forgiveness is the right thing to do, not because it's easy, not because we don't all judge you, not because I haven't judged you and the public is judging you. I'm suggesting that you should be forgiven because we're all capable of doing what you did. Everybody is. And I want to tell you a short story and then I want to turn it over to you. Have you heard of the story of the frog in water? Sure. I want to say it to the public. A frog jumps into a pot of water that's cold, swimming around in this pot of water, and it's having a great time. Somebody comes up and turns on the stove, and soon enough, the frog feels warm in the water and says to himself, you know, God, it's warm in here, but stays in the pot. Later, somebody comes up and turns it up just a little bit more, and the frog is feeling hot, very uncomfortable, but the frog adapts. Anyway, this happens a few more times. And before you know it, that frog that was in cold water is cooked. Now, this is a perfect example of how somebody can continue to adapt their consciousness and ways of doing things. And before you know it, they're cooked. I believe in part, not in total, this happened to you. Do you agree?
1: Yeah, I think, I think for sure. I think that's part of it, for sure. Yeah.
0: The other part of it was, to me, that the level of ambition in you, the level of make it happen you know you'll do whatever it takes to do it no matter what it was i think was at the driver's seat going a thousand miles an hour and i thought it was also refreshing you didn't care i mean you admitted on many interviews at a certain point you just didn't care you just wanted to make it happen and get it done and there's a culture to that too that i think is equally important so with that said (laughs) i want to give you a chance to respond to that or say something and then i have a series of questions for you
1: sure uh first thanks for having me on of course and uh I think you've really put your your finger on one of the main things, which was this uh, hyper-competitive, win-at-all-costs, the ends justify the means. uh, Since my goal is uh, what, in my mind, was something good, uh, not paying attention to some of the niceties and some of the details and some of the
0: uh, almost
1: superfluous at times uh, in terms of the redundancy uh, laws, uh, became kind of a cultural uh, approach to it uh, with me, and, and that was very wrong, very bad. And that, indeed, leads people to trouble, uh, having that kind of attitude. And so I think you have put your, your finger on it, indeed.
0: I relate to the drivenness, I will tell you. As a former tournament tennis player for 13 years and somebody has been on a 25-year mission, I totally relate to the ambitiousness and the drivenness. And the make it happen, that's what rainmaking is, make it happen. The distinction here is that at all costs is what got you. It's the other part that got you. It's not the make it happen. It was at all costs.
1: Well, I think, I think the, what that flows from, the all costs tends to flow from, uh, an ego problem, uh, where you start to think, uh, I'm, uh, I'm king and uh, whatever I want is going to happen. Nothing I want to do can't happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, whatever the problem is, I'm going to navigate it. And that sort of losing the realization that there are certain things in life that just aren't going to happen. And wanting them to happen, wishing them to happen, doesn't uh, make them right or that they should happen and can lead you into real problems. And that's, that's partly what happened with me.
0: I remember as a young man that you were very driven even in high school, in grammar school. Am I correct or am I incorrect? Do I
1: remember properly? you're correct. I was driven in nursery school. Uh, (laughs) You're right. Exactly. You were driven? I think you
0: had a car at birth. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. There are some people that are going to be saying to themselves, listening to this, this man was involved in so much high-level corruption And hurt so many people that he's a rat to turn around now and try and transform the system. Yet at the same time, it's interesting that the material that you abused is the material that you could help transform. It's like a paradox, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I, I think people also have to remember something. First of all, the my story, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, was my story became the uh, fodder for hyperbole uh, as well. I, I did break the law. I did go over the line, and I did uh, plea to uh, a number of things. But what happened in the course of my story was that since I wasn't speaking and I was silent about all this, uh, the media to some degree got, got a free uh, run at me, and they they... Kind of went out of the box a little bit at times. In fact, I guess one could safely say that a third of what was said about me was indeed accurate. A third was probably exaggerated, and a third was just completely made up. They, there's some papers who, who apparently, uh, and some radio stations that blame me for Katrina, Hurricane Katrina in uh, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, I was an okay lobbyist, but I wasn't that good a lobbyist. And, uh, you know, so things just kind of got crazy there. And so one of the things I wanted to do was say, okay, look, here is exactly what happened here. Here's what I did that was wrong. I do own up to the fact I did wrong. I do own up, and I'm ashamed that I did wrong. But let's put it in a little bit of a perspective of the truth so that it doesn't uh, rise to the level of uh, war crimes. I mean, goodness, I actually spoke in Baltimore early on uh, before my book came out, and uh, it was a group of academics, and they had seen some of the you know, uh, excited uh, uh, material that had been put out, including a documentary that was made, uh, that unfortunately was uh, many degrees biased. And this person who was a professor actually got up and asked me, uh, what do I think my crimes against humanity were? And I said, what do you mean, my crimes against humanity? And he said, well, you know, your crimes against, I said, you mean like a war criminal? He said, yes. I said, you know, I've done things that are wrong, but I think it's important to own up to what I did that was wrong, not what. You know the image was so so that's important, but that's an aside, and that's not really the main focus of what what I try to focus on. What I try to focus on is is uh, trying to um, uh, focus on the system that I was involved in and my involvement in it. And indeed, unfortunately, it is uh, one that is rife with corruption. It is not an excuse, by the way, to for me that. Just because I operated in in a corrupt milieu that I myself uh, engaged in it, that is not an excuse, and I was justly punished for the things I did. But we do still have this system there, and I think what I'm trying to do is speak out about it. And in terms of people who might look at it and say, well, you know, how could you have participated in it, and now all of a sudden you're against it, the very fact that I was so deeply involved in it, the very fact that I was so ingrained in it, and I was at the leading edge of the spear with it, is what makes my speaking out important, not for me personally, but for hopefully for the community so that something can be done about it. I don't know that I'm ever going to repeat my, quote, reputation, and I'm not certain I, frankly, am going to even endeavor to try to do it. Uh, I'm just going to try to tell the truth and hopefully make some recompense, as you mentioned, so that I can, maybe looking forward in the future, know that I did something good in this regard as well.
0: I wouldn't want to be in your position on a number of fronts, and I'm glad that your wife is still with you and that your family's intact because... It's one thing to be broken by being put in jail and all of the horror of what that's about and your reputation going to hell and losing all your money. In other words, a career finished. It's another thing to lose your family. So I think you have some mercy from above, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Well, no question about it. And frankly, as most men do, I married far above myself. And uh, I'm fortunate to have an amazing uh, wife who was not just, just... It wasn't merely that she didn't leave. And by the way, just as an aside... 80% 80% of the men that get the amount of prison time I got actually got for, get far less, about half the prison time I got. 80% of their wives leave them. So I was blessed not only to not have her do that, but at every juncture where I needed bucking up, she was there to do it is astonishing and amazing thing and I'm grateful beyond words for her as well as for the kids and, and my my father and my mother who unfortunately passed away in the midst of all this. Uh may she rest in, in heaven. But uh I uh I'm very, very grateful for the family I have. I certainly don't deserve them and I'm just uh I thank God for it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of what you've said. You shared in a number of interviews and in your book that by the time somebody gets into Congress that they're strapped with massive amounts of debt and they're already coached what they need to do. Can you share about that?
1: Absolutely. What happens is our elections, of course, are in November's of of the election years. And uh, first Tuesday, you know, after the first Monday in November, and so a new member of Congress is elected in November. In December, they come invariably to Washington to meet with their leadership and their other party members to form their committees and form their caucuses and vote in their leadership and do all those sort of housekeeping administrative items. Now, when they're here in Washington, uh, their leadership gathers them and says that as a new member of Congress, your important mission is to get reelected. Uh, we hope you'll do other things, obviously, but we don't want to lose your seat so that we have to go back and struggle to regain it at more cost, frankly, uh, the next time. So you need to be reelected. Now, the first step in being reelected is you need to pay off your campaign debt, and most of them come in with a campaign debt. And so to pay off your campaign debt, we'd like to introduce you to people who have ready money to help you, and will be also of guidance for you and often include former members of Congress. Meet the lobbyists. And that's where it starts. It starts before they're sworn in. They're not sworn in until January, but before they're sworn in, they're already being introduced that they weren't previously. They're already being introduced to the lobbyists, and that's where it starts.
0: And endemically, that's the first point of the problem. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, so again, assuming they haven't themselves uh, created those relationships prior, you know, if they're a former staffer or somebody running for Congress, they already know this. But assuming it's a uh, brand new, uh, shiny uh, member of Congress who uh, ran on a reform agenda and ran on trying to come in and do good, and all, not all of them, but virtually all of them come to Washington wanting to do good. They don't come in, come in there wanting to be part of the cabal the in Washington. They come to wanting to do good. But immediately they're introduced but now not all of them take the bait right away, but over time virtually all of them uh succumb to it.
0: I think you said if I remember correctly that you had approximately 100 lobbyist offices connected to you that you were coaching or you were strategically in charge of or influencing.
1: Well, yeah, 100 congressional offices right. that we we had very significant pull with. Uh, I, I said further, um, uh, not in the book, but in, in other subsequent uh, interviews, that there were probably another couple of hundred members' offices that we did something for and we had some connection to. There really was no member of Congress that we couldn't get to in the sense of at least getting the meeting, getting the ask us, and making our case. That doesn't mean we'd always get what we wanted, but virtually all the time we would.
0: And I think you said also that basically that the lobbyist helps you retire your debt.
1: Right. The lobbyist As comes a congressman. with the checks, gives yeah. you the campaign contributions, and that starts the relationship, the improper relationship of gratitude uh, commences right there.
0: I want to go to some of the systemic things because I think that the public really needs to understand this. Talk about what a Senate hearing is or House of Representatives hearing is. And I know you talked about them being kangaroo courts, but how does it work?
1: Well, some some of the hearings are uh, informational gathering; they're not hostile hearings. The hearings, though, that are set up as hostile hearings, uh, are set up by members who are after an industry, or they want to go get somebody in the uh, executive branch of the government, or whatever they want to do. They will hold a hearing. If they're a subcommittee uh, chairman or if they're a full committee chairman, they'll be able to call a hearing. Uh, and when they call the hearing, uh, if they're out to go get somebody, they'll put them under oath. And they'll, of course, subpoena them and all their documentation and all their records. And if you're a private party who has been subpoenaed by one of these committees, uh, you better be in, uh, in shape for uh, spending upwards of a million dollars to get through this hearing. Between lawyers and reviewing of documents and all the rest, depending on what the hearing's about, and how much they want to come after you. But if you're a corporation or a labor union with a hostile member after you, that's what you're going to spend, and that's what my clients would spend when, in fact, we had to prepare them for a hearing. So uh, once they uh, they do that, they will rifle through all the materials you give them. They have uh, you know virtually unlimited staff. Uh, who can, uh, figure out, uh, and find in, uh, in the little, bit, find the needles in the haystacks, and they will design the hearing around that, and they'll bring you in under oath, and assuming you don't take the fifth and, uh, stay basically away from answering any question, uh, they will then commence a series of questions. These questions are generally designed, uh, to, in essence, get you to perjure yourself, uh, to contradict yourself. To get you to be in contempt of the Senate, which is a standard that is not, uh, is not, shall we say, the most rigorous uh, at law, and in essence, to embarrass you and to create a problem for you. Now, I, my hearing, that was indeed what the case was. We were told that they had all of the uh, all my tax returns and every document I had written, et cetera, and they were going to keep me there for two weeks. So I. Knew, I knew the score because I had been involved in this process uh, before. And so I wound up playing the, uh, taking the Fifth Amendment uh, at the hearing.
0: And if you're there for two weeks, I think there's something where they can put you in a private jail there. Correct me. What is
1: that? Well, if, if you wind up in contempt uh, or you wind up uh, violating another rule or whatever they have, they have uh, it's not like a regular court where you have rights. Uh, you have very few rights. I'll give you an example. My attorney, uh, at the beginning of my hearing, uh, raised a point of information with the senators. And he said to them, you know, you have a law, a rule, rather, in the Senate that you have promulgated that states the following, that if a hearing is likely to lead to a criminal indictment of a witness or to the, the destruction of that witness's business reputation." then that hearing is to be conducted in private chambers. And so he made a, He asked them, could there be a motion to take my hearing, which was certainly on both counts, uh, likely, uh, and put it in private chambers, and they sort of looked at each other, kind of smirked a little bit, and said, uh, no, we, we, uh, we turned you down, and they moved on. So, you know, they know what they're doing.
0: So you could actually destroy a person's reputation way before they've been found guilty or innocent just based on what they want to do.
1: Oh, absolutely. That that's that is the when they're on attack up there. That is the name of the game. And by the way, they can't be sued for libel uh, because of the speech and debate clause. They can say what they want about you, uh, and then, by the way, the media can report what they said about you. Uh, as a, and then the media aren't responsible either. There's no way to, you know, at the proverbial, uh, was it, uh, Reagan, uh, Donovan, the Reagan administration uh, secretary of labor who was put through the ringer and then was declared innocent, and he said, where do I go to get my reputation back? There is nothing like that.
0: When you did take the fifth,
1: wasn't it hard for you? It was terribly hard. I, I was sitting in front of senators who I had— uh, one of them I had personally given a ton of campaign contributions to, uh, prompting the promise by him that he would not have anything in his committee that would negatively affect any of my clients. And he was castigating me at this hearing as being corrupt and being uh, disgraceful and uh the, detriment to the American political system. And I actually so wanted to say, uh, well, Senator, by corrupt, do you mean like our our breakfast at this restaurant where I handed you those checks? Is that what you mean? But of course, that only happens in the movies. The minute I would have done that, my privilege would have been broken and I would have been uh, not too uh, uh, soon thereafter on my way to their little Senate cell.
0: I don't know how you were able to hold it in. I mean, seriously, it's kind of like you were doing what you were doing at the level of corruption, at the highest level we can understand. The thing is that you weren't alone, and it doesn't matter because the focus was on you. In other words, you got it for everybody.
1: You were taken well, down for very everybody. very convenient for these guys because, uh, you know, what they do in Washington, I don't think they plan this, but every few years there will be sort of this eruption and uh, there will be somebody let out on the gurney like me. And they'll be able to uh, go and attack them and, you know, poke at them and do what they will, pat themselves on the back that they really stood up for America, and then they go right back to work. And that's the great shame of this, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I think that this has got to stop. So hopefully people will pay attention and maybe do something.
0: The other thing you said is that a lot of the people that write the rules and are making little dents in reform are the ones who are committing the corruption that you used to do.
1: And they 're the ones who uh, the people in terms of the congressmen they 're the ones who want to go out and become lobbyists, so obviously they 're not going to make their uh, the rules too difficult on themselves uh, they They do not hand over to third parties as they should, by the way, through third-party panels, uh, these responsibilities to make these rules. And and obviously anybody else in any other industry would be required to have an outside ethics officer come in and take care of this and, and put together an ethics regime. Otherwise, it wouldn't be taken seriously. But here, uh, they are able, with a straight face, to put this forward as reform. The reforms are feckless and they're they're ineffective.
0: If bribery is at the center at the core of the process and the way of doing business in Congress and in the Senate. How do you see the extraction of it? Not just at a process level, but at a consciousness level because it's the consciousness that's driving all the action.
1: Well, the truth is, you're not going to you're not going to affect their consciousness because, or their consciousness, because the, these guys are perfectly not only happy to to proceed with how they're operating. They think they're moral. They think this. By the way, so did I. I, I didn't sit here participating in this system, thinking I'm evil and I'm doing wrong. Unfortunately, the concept of the banality of evil to some degree plays here in the sense that the entire atmosphere is one that this is a-okay. They've taken, in essence, bribery, which is the giving of a financial gift to a public servant in exchange, perhaps not directly, but in essence in exchange for something you want back. That is bribery. Okay, you can't walk into a court and hand the judge an envelope with tickets to the football game and say, right before your trial, and say, hey, uh, you know, I hope things will go well here. Everybody gets that, that that's a bribe. But for some reason in Congress, none of us got it. I didn't get it. I get it now, obviously. But I, unfortunately for me, needed my head kicked in. But the others who are still there, not only don't think it's accurate, but they're attacking me vociferously for even raising this matter. The
0: silence about it, its embarrassment, its reputation breaking, and yet it is a way of doing business. Do you think that there are, I'll use the term, (laughs) kosher lobbyists? (laughs) Are there clean lobbyists? Are there people who are lobbyists that are doing the job without doing what you did?
1: Yes, there are. I would say, in fact, most people who are registered to lobby are, in fact, not Break, not only really not breaking the law, by the way, it's got to be very clear ninety nine percent of what I did was not illegal that 's the problem, okay It was legal, and therefore it's happening now and not, and I would say most of the lobbyists do not participate in the payola system uh, that I did and that exists up there. They try to go in and make their case for their clients. they try to go in and, on the merits, but i've got to tell you something: they don 't stand a chance. When they're up against somebody like me, okay, there's, they don't stand a chance. They may stand a chance with a few members of Congress, but they're never going to win. And until we get the playing field more level, uh, so that people like I was and people like they are now cannot use money to, uh, to, to make that playing field unlevel until that happens, we're never going to have a fair system up there.
0: And now here's the next question. Do you really think in your heart of hearts and in your life experience, good and bad, that this, quote, system that you're referring to is reformable? Really, really reformable.
1: I believe the answer is yes. It is absolutely reformable. But it requires – it can't just be wished. It's going to require the American people taking some of these folks and throwing them out of office. It's going to require something I'm actually working on right now with United Republic, where I've become a senior fellow, uh, putting together a piece of legislation that removes the special interest money and the lobbyist money from politics, that closes the revolving door of Congress basically permanently so that they can't cash in, that provides a limit of the amount of terms they can serve uh, in Washington. And that applies all the laws that they make to themselves, a very strictly and tightly drawn piece of legislation that we're working on right now. And then in conjunction with that, we are going to devise and uh, implement, we hope, a campaign of pledges that members of Congress and candidates for Congress will be asked by citizen activists on the left and on the right to sign that if they do not uh, we agree to co-sponsor the legislation uh, as attached to it and vote for every, uh, against every amendment to the bill and vote for every opportunity to get it to a vote that they will not run for Congress again. And now there will be people who won't sign it and there will be people who will sign it and break it. But what we're hoping to do is create a political weapon in the hands of those who are willing to sign it and keep it so that they can defeat the members of Congress, and the candidates who are uh, violative of these things. And then the mission is, and these are not easy missions, but this is what we're working on, to get the American public behind us. uh, And by the way, I've been on about 300 talk radio shows, TV shows, and the rest since my book came out. And I've yet to find a host anywhere, in any, any part of the country, in any station of any ideological stripe, who is opposed to what I'm talking about. Because everybody outside of Washington gets this. But basically to put the hammer down and to come together and go beat these people. Now going through a couple of cycles of people losing because of this issue will change the dynamics of this issue. And until that's done, though, nothing will happen. But it can be done.
0: That's refreshing to hear that it can be done. And, you know, you'll be hated in the process, but you'll be loved in another way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're expressing their hate now of me and and, uh, vociferously, but I I don't care. What are they going to do to me? I mean, I've been to federal prison for a long time. Do you think I'm scared because of lobbyists?
0: (laughs) Talk a little bit about how lobbyists draft legislation, because I didn't know that. And I think this is still a mystery profession. Can you talk about how lobbyists draft legislation? How do they do it and talk about it?
1: Yeah, no, very simply, uh, what happens is they meet with members of Congress, uh, prepared lobbyists, when they go in to ask a member of the Congress or their staff to help them on an issue, to support them on an issue, especially one that requires legislation. And just as a uh, as a, an aside, most of the issues you lobby on don't actually require legislation. They are often about defeating legislation or opposing initiatives. But putting that aside for a moment, uh, if you go in and ask a member of Congress to support a bill, a prepared lobbyist, a lobbyist who knows their business, is going to come in with a bill already drafted. Now, the congressman, not every congressman wants the lobbyist to draft their legislation. But virtually every staffer does. Why? It's less work for them. So they certainly want to take, at a minimum, the draft that the lobbyists has put together and use it as the basis of their draft. There are very few who are willing to put through a lobbyist's draft of a legislation without any emendations and, and additions. But, um, uh, but many, many of them uh, are delighted when the lobbyist comes in, asks for something that they're agreeing to do, and the lobbyist has done the work for them. That's how that happens.
0: Do you have a lot agree? I do. And you actually did an amendment to a particular bill that you talked about on television that was pretty heavy duty. You you know what I'm talking about?
1: The one about the tribe in Texas? Yeah. Yes.
0: Talk just a little bit about the kind of insidiousness and the level of sophistication that goes on with respect to drafting legislation. Share what happened.
1: Well, uh, most lobbyists who are, and not all lobbyists, by the way, I'm not, I'm not speaking on behalf of the ones who are obeying the rules and things like that. I mean, obviously they have a different tack that they take. Uh, but the lobbyists who are playing the game, the lobbying game, And they're trying to get something approved by Congress. And if it's something that they feel, well, you know, wouldn't necessarily be widely uh, supported and enjoyed by the the public in general, or if they feel they have opponents who, once they get wind of it, will do what's necessary to defeat a bill. And it's much easier, by the way, to defeat legislation than to promulgate legislation. But those lobbyists who, indeed, wind up, as I mentioned earlier, drafting these uh, bills... They're going to want to draft them in as obtrusive a, a way as possible. They do not want people to be able to read the language of their bill and readily understand what it does. Uh, so as a consequence, you wind up having very confusing language at times, language which, unless you're an expert in the U.S. code, you couldn't understand. And we did this, uh, the bill that you're discussing. Uh, I put forward a um, uh, uh, language, that uh, and this was to assist uh, one of my tribal clients in obtaining a casino uh, in Texas where they were blocked, and we had language that was very, very subtle, and it said something to the essence of Public Law 39 so and so dash whatever it was the number and the code is he- hereby deleted. Section two is deleted. Now, unless you knew what you were looking for, there's no way in the world you'd understand what that said. Now, it happened to be that the chairman of the committee uh, was our supporter, and he understood this as well. And he was very happy for that to be the language of the bill, because he didn't want to, frankly, have to go into it with a lot of the members.
0: Knowing what you know and knowing the level which you did what you just described, isn't that another piece that the legislation itself is mostly not read by Congress people, and that this expression of doing business is happening. What about this side of reform?
1: Well, this this kind of thing has to be reformed in a different way. The reason you have these things where people get away with this is because you have these 2,000-page bills. The truth is Congress and the government, the federal government of the United States, is involved in far too many things. It has expanded so far beyond any notion of what it was supposed to be that now you have 2,000-page bills. You need 2,000-page bills because the government is involved in too many things. The reforms that I talk about in the short term in the book are great and they, they could be wonderful in terms of reducing some of the corruption. But ultimately, the reason you have 30,000 lobbyists, the reason you have corruption, the reason Washington attracts people who are sort of good at this game is because Washington is too powerful. And as long as it's powerful, you're going to have stuff like this. It's not going to be possible, at least I can't, I have yet to come across anyone who can figure out how to make a law to prohibit. Uh, wording of a bill that's accurate, but uh, abstruse, that, that doesn't uh, discuss what it is. Uh, it, 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 again, is a problem. Yeah, maybe there's a way to put a, a Senate rule in or a House rule in that there has to be a title, but then you're going to have 3,000-page bills. And so there are certain things that are going to be required uh, of limiting, um, first of all, limiting the lobbyists uh, playing with money, So if a congressman is is not uh, being bribed by the lobbyist and doesn't have a financial interest in the lobbyist's outcome, they're going to be more likely to not want to do these kind of egregious things. Uh, But, you know, this is yet, I I raised it in the book and I raise others in the book. And again, the reason I wrote the book, because there's so many ways that the, uh, the special interest community knows how to skin the cat and they have to be opposed at every juncture. I say to the reform groups that I work with that this is not a fight we're going to engage in, and we're going to win, and then we get to go home. Nobody can ever go home. This will be a fight forever because it's a fight against human nature.
0: You know how with business plans, many venture capitalists will look at a good, succinct executive summary. Why can't bills have that, where those executive summaries about the bills have to be accurate, spot-on, and if there's any lies in there, the whole bill's thrown out. Like, why can't a new process be brought into that? Wouldn't that be
1: helpful? I I think it can be. I think it can be. But please keep in mind who we're talking about dealing with this right now. Again, until we get the bribery out of there, until we get some of the playing field leveled, you're dealing with people who would be delighted to have a summary because then the fight's going to be about the summary. Okay? What is an accurate summary will become a fight. And, and that will become a political fight on the Hill.
0: Isn't it easier, though, to have the summary have to match up with the essence of what the bill is saying?
1: Putting my bad hat back on. Right, put it, you know, it on. I, I can tell you right now, whatever issue you brought me, whatever language you brought me, I bet you I could write it differently, completely differently than you, and make a case that mine is accurate.
0: <laughs> scary.
1: <laughs> You're scary. scary.
0: Badass scary. Okay. Yeah. Um, this, it's frightening. It's frightening, but it's refreshing to know that what you're saying is there. Do you think that the legal field and the legal culture, the legal mind, is part of the problem in all of this? Well, I mean... I'm not bashing the legal field, but I'm asking you really to look deeply. Do you think that this is... Part of the key that's driving a bad engine. Or I mean, starting in terms bad of uh,
1: people, people who approach things uh, legalistically, trying to um, uh, create loopholes and things like that.
0: Yeah, it's done all the time.
1: Oh, sure, sure. I mean, that that you know, that manner of thinking, that cleverness, that legal uh, contortionism, uh, that's what the lobbyists get paid for, as well as the lawyers. That's why they're paid. So absolutely. Now, having said that, by the way, I think it's very important for me to add that the American Bar Association has done incredibly good work to try to reform the system. They have a series of proposals that are really magnificent. Uh, I don't agree with every one of them, but I, I think that most of them are fantastic. So they are, as a group, trying to do uh, what's right and trying to find a way to solve these things. But that doesn't stop individual members who are clever, too clever by half, coming up with, uh, with ways around things. That you're always going to have that.
0: You were involved with the Indian casinos in a lot of conflict of interest actions. Do you agree?
1: No, I don't agree.
0: Talk about that.
1: Thank you. I I, I very much want to. The the conflict of interest idea uh, grew out of a project that I did in Texas and Louisiana. And uh, I was falsely accused of being the one to engineer the closing of a casino uh, that a tribe opened up illegally, by the way, in El Paso, Texas. Uh, this tribe opened this casino up when Ann Richards was the governor who was the governor that preceded George W. Bush uh, in Texas. So you're talking a number of years ago. They opened up the casino even though this tribe had been pre- uh, precluded by law along with another tribe in Houston. They were precluded by law that they were recognized in uh, to open a casino of any kind. And so they, they uh, after years of frustration, they just opened their casino. When George Bush became governor, he went in and he started the process of closing the casino. My clients were in Louisiana, which was far away from El Paso, Texas. Many, many hours, uh, 10, 15 hours uh, drive. They had a gaming market that was in Houston, Texas, right over the border of Louisiana. The other tribe that I mentioned a minute ago... One day uh, decided to open a rogue casino, an illegal casino in um, uh, Houston as well. And so we became involved in the process of trying to get that casino shut. In that process... Uh, the state reflo- responded to us uh, that they were in the final stages of shutting the El Paso casino, and only then would deal with the um, uh, Houston casino. I responded, uh, I didn't understand uh, that logic. I mean, if you have two people breaking the law, uh, do you wait till the f- first criminal is in prison before you go arrest the second one? You don't. But they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't budge. So my communication was, well, well, I hope you hurry up so that we can get you to do what we need you to do, which is shut this casino. That was taken by uh, Senator McCain in the hearings uh, and uh, in the Indian Affairs Committee when they presented that activity. Because later what I did was I alighted on the idea that the way to defeat their subsequent legislative endeavors in the state of Texas to legalize their casinos was to split these tribes apart by solving the problem in El Paso. My proposal to do that was wrongly interpreted as me, A, first shutting them, and B, now coming to reopen them. Uh, That was absolutely inaccurate when it was portrayed in the committee. They conveniently, the Indian Affairs Committee, conveniently left out the fact that there was even a tribe in Houston. So what happened was a series of outrageous reports, and by the way, I would have shared that outrage if it was true. Uh, that I had somehow uh, acted in conflict of interest with my clients. I absolutely never did that. And, uh, and it was an outrage. I tried my best within the limits of, that I had at the time to explain it, and I explained it fully in my book.
0: I'm sure that you've wanted to say
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, when I did my 60 Minutes interview, we went into this. And yeah. I gave a full explanation, and they didn't include one clip of it.
0: I didn't see that in the 60-minute interview. So you have been accused of... Billing an enormous amount to your clients, and I think that you are the highest-paid lobbyist on the Hill.
1: What do you say? Let let me respond to both of those. Yeah, I do. I want you to respond. Thank you. I appreciate, by the way, the opportunity to respond to these. Number one, I wasn't the uh, highest-paid lobbyist on the Hill. I had the most successful individual practice in Washington uh, in terms of uh, the aggregate of my fees. But I was certainly among the uh, those, my firm and I were uh, some of the most expensive. But that was only because the stakes of the efforts that we engaged in were much, much higher financially than the average lobbyist. What would happen is this. A client would usually be failed by some rival lobbying firm, and they would be at death's door. And they would come to us, and they would say, listen, can you basically pull us from the clutches of defeat that were about to be uh, uh, closed on us? And we would tell them, okay, well, here is what we charge. You may have been paying an average of 20000 a month to uh, your previous lobbyist. Uh, we charge $100,000 or $150,000 a month, and here's why. Because we put a team of uh, uh, 20, 30, 40 people on the field, especially in this kind of a life-resuscitating effort we now need to engage in for you. And this is what it's going to cost up front. Uh, they either agree or they don't agree. If they don't agree, they go find another lobbyist. If they agree, they pay us. Now, at the end of the day, um, probably charged, uh, all told, probably north of about $80 million in fees to our clients we added up what the benefit of those efforts were financially to these clients either directly or indirectly and not counting a major thing which I'll talk about in a few moments that uh, that we did for them and those efforts added up to approximately 6 billion dollars in benefits so for about 80 million dollars they bought 6 billion dollars worth of uh worth of success now Again, I, I wish I had never even been in the business, but I'd like you know, I try to address what it was at that time. Our clients considered us, and some of them actually said, we were the best slot machine on the reservations. We were the best <laughs> return on their investment, for better or for worse. By the way, I'm not uh, uh, not defending this in terms of the overall policy stuff right now, but looking at whether or not our clients got ripped off, uh, I think that uh, they they felt at the time they didn't, and what happened was subsequently, a lot of the clients lost control, political control of their tribes, you know their tribal uh, governments that are elected, and our clients who we worked for were defeated. They were often defeated by people who were exceedingly hostile. tribal politics is about as rough as you can get, and they would come out and attack us and attack them. But in terms of whether the clients got the value, uh, it's very, very hard to argue that our clients did not get value. What I did do, that I pled guilty for, by the way, and I'm ashamed about, and I should never have done. And, uh, and it was not my decision to make, I didn't properly inform my clients that some of the companies, were actually one of the companies that I was uh, involved with, that I recommended to them uh, to service some of their needs outside of Washington in some of these fights to retain their markets, that uh, I had, in fact, an arrangement that I was getting compensated to the tune of half of the profit that was left over. That is what I pled guilty to. That did not affect the fact that we worked on their efforts and succeeded for them, but it was something they should have been able to make the decision for. They likely would have decided to go forward because they know I was working on it, and they probably thought that I wasn't going to do it for free, and I wasn't. But it was not my right to make that decision, and that's what I pled to, and that's, in fact, what I went to prison for and got punished about.
0: Very interesting. So in that way, in that last example, that is the conflict of interest of the lack of disclosure and the fact that they weren't given the dominion to know that.
1: Exactly. That was not my right to take that away from them. I did. I regret it. I wish I could undo it. uh, and I've been punished for it.
0: The other thing is, even if you were, quote, notoriously expensive as a lobbyist, there's no crime in being expensive. It's the question of what's getting done. And so many people said you could sell anybody on anything and you were the most powerful person in your field. And my question to you is, were you ever aware of being power-hungry, power-addicted, a power freak, if at all?
1: Seriously. I think, you know, I didn't... um, I guess my addiction... uh, I had addictions. Uh, My main addiction was I got very involved in funding schools, and unfortunately for me, this drove a lot of my mania with business, uh, whereas anybody else would have said, gosh, I made $20 million last year. I can take it easy. Uh, I was literally living hand to mouth because of the uh, the efforts, the communal and uh, charitable efforts that we supported were huge drains. I mean, we started schools that were big, you know, got to be not huge schools, but big enough that they cost millions a year. And um, uh, so what that did was that my attention was focused on that. It wasn't focused on power in the sense that, you know, I didn't really, uh, I didn't feel like I was so powerful. Uh, I didn't, I should have, I guess. I should have dawned on me that the fact that I get everything I want, that's like a hint, hey, you have some power. But, uh, you know, I would go home every night and I didn't have any power over my (laughs) kids. So I guess uh, you know. I guess I didn't really think about that, but uh, uh, the greed with me, you know, my wife and I gave away eighty percent of what we made. So it wasn't necessarily a personal greed. It was a greed for doing these things that we were involved in, and you know, what was our motivation? Yeah, sure. Some of our motivation was good uh, to help people help kids and, and we had kids living in our house. Also, I wrote about it in the book, seven kids beyond our five who lived there who needed a place to stay. So we wanted very much to help, you know, help folks. And, but maybe there was a tinge of, you know, okay, boy, look how good a person I am there as well. I, I can't deny that. You,
0: you know that the regular public is going to have a hard time accepting that a lot of the misguided actions of you were led by a philanthropic heart
1: right I'm not i 'm not, say, not saying that my misguided actions were only led by that, but right. in terms of what I was addicted to, that was certainly one of my addictions in terms of the other stuff my main, uh, My main uh, uh, difficulty was the addiction to winning or the addiction to wanting to absolutely never lose and letting the ends again justify the means to get the victory, whether it was for a good cause or not it 's not a good thing, and that isn 't indeed what uh, Uh, What pushed a lot of it, you know, but look, I have to tell it what like it was with me. I have to tell what I thought I was doing. I, you know, everybody else has said what they thought I was doing, but they aren't me. Uh, You know, I have to also throw in what I thought I was doing. And, you know, in the sense that it's uh, it it seems incredible to people, you know, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Some of it is going to not resonate with people who've been conditioned to think of me as a villain. Uh, but some of it, you know, I wasn't a complete villain. I wasn't a, uh, certainly I wasn't a saint, but I wasn't the complete uh, satanic uh, figure that I was made out to be. And I know that people, don't, some people don't like to hear this. They want, you know, Americans in general love to have pure characters in fiction and, and movies and things like that. They love to have a perfect villain. They love to have a perfect hero. And I'm certainly not a hero, but I'm not necessarily a perfect villain.
0: Yeah, the paradox and the complexity makes it sometimes undigestible. (laughs) Right, true. I want to go to page 270 in your book on the last paragraph of that page, where you're talking about legislation. And you gave an example of one day a U.S. senator from New England goes to Target and buys a picture frame. You remember that? Yes, I do. Can you talk about that? Because that is such an interesting example of how things work
1: yeah i i this is a completely uh obviously uh made up uh high purpose right, uh, made right. up um uh example but uh uh, what, what I try to do is capture what is possible on Capitol Hill. Which is there, I talk about the uh, uh, you know you own a company. I talk about what if you own a company in the Midwest and you've made picture frames uh, for for 100 years, 150 years, your your family, and you make the finest picture frames, and uh, you you take pride in them, and you hire you have people who work for you, et cetera, and then everything's great. And then one day. A senator from New England goes and buys a picture frame at a store, and it's not one of your nice picture frames. It's somebody else's shabby picture frame, and they, uh, uh, he's putting it up on the wall, and it breaks, and it falls, and it cuts his foot, and he's furious. What does he do? What could he do? What he could do, and what too many of them do do is pick up the phone and call their staff and say, okay, this picture frame business, so I'm going to get these guys. My foot's bleeding, I'm upset, I'm this, I'm that. You know, and there are people who have excessive egos up there, uh, as everyone, I shouldn't say everyone in politics does, but a lot of people do, including me when I was there. Uh, you know, we, we, all, we all think you're, you're uh, the kings of the universe or masters of the universe. And so he decides that he's going to go out, and he's going to fix them, and he's going to put forward the Omnibus Picture Frame Act, where he's going to describe how a picture frame should be made and the safety conditions and this and that and the other thing. And all of a sudden, you hear about this from a friend of a friend of a friend who says, hey, there's some bill I read about in Congress on picture frames. You find out what it is, and you see that it will destroy your company, that you'll have to totally redo your factory. You can't afford to do it. Your margins aren't enough. And so you have a choice now either go out of business, you bring all your friends and family who work for you in and say, okay, look, sorry, I wanted to hand this down to the children like it was handed to me, but we're out of business come uh, next fall when this law is uh, passed. Or you ignore it uh, and you say, we're going to make the picture frames every way we want it to, and that works until they kick your door in, you know, to arrest you because you're breaking the law. Or you decide, look, I'm going to go to Washington and I'm going to tell all these congressmen and senators uh, what's what. And you get there, you don't know anybody, so you have to stay there for months and meet everybody. Or you do what most people do, you hire a lobbyist. Now, what lobbyist are you going to hire? you Are going to hire a lobbyist who knows everything about picture frames and could talk about details of how we make them and what the engineering is and the, the, the marketing and all the rest? Or are you going to hire the senator's golfing buddy? who can basically, on the on the third hole of the golf course, turn to him and go, Hey, uh, Senator, what's the deal well, with this picture frame? Can. Come on, you're hurting one of my clients. You know, can't you just knock it off? Okay, yeah, you're right. I, I don't know what I was thinking about. And there it is. It's over with. Now, that happens a lot in terms of the lobbyist who's close because of the golf. I was one of them, by the way. Now, is that fair? Is that right? Okay. Well, what are you supposed to do? If you're the owner of the company... What are you supposed to do? Who are you going to hire? You're going to hire the person who's going to get to that senator. The problem is, number one, the playing field is on level. But number two, the problem is that the senator has the ability to do this. The senator has an ability to put a bill in for something like this. That was not what this country's government was supposed to be, but it is. And so it's one of the things, as I said earlier, that have got to be reformed.
0: I love that example. I mean, I hate that example, but it's a very important example. I want to ask you... In your professional experience, how deep level do you feel and think or know insider trading is occurring in the Senate and the Congress?
1: I don't think it's, I don't think it's widespread. Okay? I think most of them uh, actually didn't even know that they could do it until it became public. Uh, but it was widespread enough that enough people were doing it, enough people of power were doing it. And what's even more dangerous than the insider trading is the potential that they have to actually move a stock price. Not merely trade on information they have, but by doing certain actions that are very innocent public service actions, they can actually determine where a stock price is going to go. For example, if they call a hearing on an industry, or call a hearing on a company, or issue a press release on a company, that they're going to investigate them. That alone could drive a stock price down. Absolutely. And how many of them are actually in the position where they bought stock because of this? we don't know, we never will know uh, the great work that was done uh, in the book, uh, Throw them all out uh, you know by peter Schweitzer uh, brought this to light, and they they were forced to have to deal with this, Of course, they haven 't dealt with it. <laughs> you know They passed the bill through the Senate, and so far it 's not going anywhere um, you know and this is the typical Washington dance. Uh, and that's the reason, by the way, in terms of the uh, approach that we're taking, we're going to have a pledge, and we're going to stick it to them, and hold it to them, and defeat them, because otherwise they will do their typical little Washington reform effort, and nothing will get done.
0: It sounds like some things are going to get done in Washington, oh, I'm even though, try. <laughs> even though, let me tell you something: even if a part of you is not completely cleaned out yet. Let's just suppose that the Jack Abramoff that did what you did, that guy is not gone necessarily. Not a hundred percent transformed. Even if that being focused his energy on what you're talking about, it would make a difference. Well, I'm, doing, make a difference. I'm doing my
1: best. I'm doing my it best. It would make a difference.
0: Thank you. I wanna ask you one last thing and that is Talk briefly, if you would, about the relationship between a lobbyist and a staffer in particular, how it works and how you co opted it.
1: Well, first, people have to understand that, like in many businesses, the staff is uh, sort of has outsized importance. In a congressional office, whereas it used to be when Daniel Webster was a senator and other impressive figures of the past, they had no staff. They wrote their own bills, they wrote their own letters, they did everything themselves. Now, a a, a congressional office looks like a mini corporation with a staff. And so the staff really run everything. And as a consequence, those lobbyists who know what they're doing will work very closely with the staff. Now, you have to work with the member, too, because you've got to get the CEO to sign off on, on the project, so to speak. But the staff are vitally important. Now, with me... When it came time to hire people from Capitol Hill to become lobbyists, because that's really 90-plus percent of the people who are lobbyists come from Capitol Hill because they have the connections and everything like that, Uh, I would approach uh, staff members to uh, see if they wanted to come on board. As I was initially building my practice, I would ask them to come on board immediately because I needed staff to uh, continue our efforts. So I didn't detect what I later sort of noticed, which was that when I went to a staffer and said, I'd like to hire you, and they would say to me, well, I am not able to leave the Congressional office at this point, but I would come and work for you, say, in a year. I noticed at that point, if we agreed that that would be the case, that they would join us in a year, that they didn't wait a year to start working for me. They immediately started directing their efforts and their influences and everything else in behalf of my clients. So in fact, they worked for me already, only they were still being paid by the public. Now, this, uh, this which I noticed, uh, is, is I'm not the only one who noticed it. Uh, the fact is, even today, it's going on. There is no more effective way to have control in a congressional office than to have made an arrangement with the chief of staff that in whatever period of time, they're going to come work for you as a lobbyist, and by the way, virtually all of them when I was up there, wanted to come work for me, because they could make much, much more money working as a lobbyist. And so as a consequence of this, the corruption that's inherent in it, and just the fact the optics are so bad, and America so hates this, so properly, that people cash in on their government service. I proposed in the reform that we are uh, are working on, that they be barred, I would prefer, frankly, for life, but I don't think we can get away with that constitutionally, but be barred for at least 10 years from moving from Capitol Hill and working for the public sector in essence uh, in positions of importance and influence to the tr- the lobbying or influence industry. And one quick point that also needs to be made, the definition of lobbyist, which frankly, I never took the time to look at because I knew I was a lobbyist. Oh, goodness gracious, I thought I was a lobbyist. I was never <laughs> a question. But I later, in fact, after the whole New Gingrich thing started, I went back and looked at the Lobbying Disclosure Act. And uh, truth be told, I could have easily and legally gotten away way with never registering as a lobbyist. And we see now this fellow who's gone on as Biden's um, uh, counsel, who deregistered himself as a lobbyist, uh, Steve Rinsetti, I think is his last name, Um, uh, deregistered himself, but he still worked at, retained control and ran his lobbying company. So we need a redefinition of what a lobbyist is, because the last definition was written by lobbyists.
0: Very interesting. That's why I asked you about the legal question that I did, because how things are named and how things are described and the limits of the boundaries are all in the legal articulation of things. You know, naming it is half the battleground. Right. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Jack Abramoff, the author of the new book, Capital Punishment, The Hard Truth About Washington Corruption from America's most notorious former lobbyist, I'm going to say. Thank you <laughs> Thank for taking you. your time. Thank you for turning your life around. Go get them. Thanks. Sir. Thanks so much.